You've heard of the company Sotheby's, the premier auction company in the world. They auction off fine art and collectibles and anything of value more than six figures. And they will offer for purchase next month a rare black diamond named the Enigma. It has 55 facets. It weighs 555 carats. For perspective, especially for those who cannot see the picture displayed, if you're listening to this later, it is a diamond almost the size of a baseball. And it is polished, dark, with iridescent sparkles beneath the surface. And the hook, Sotheby's of London would have you believe, is that this unique black diamond is from outer space. Reading from the auction website. Accompanied by a certificate from the Guinness Book of Records for the world's largest cut diamond, the Enigma is an exquisite and extremely rare carbonado-type black diamond, the largest fancy black natural color diamond in the world. What makes carbonado diamonds such a unique stone? Most diamonds are usually formed deep within the earth. Carbonados differ in that they are found close to the earth's surface, suggesting extraterrestrial origins. It is thought that this specific type of black diamond was created either from meteor impacts or from supernova explosions that formed diamond-bearing asteroids which ultimately collided with the earth. The sale of the Enigma is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to acquire one of the rarest billion-year-old cosmic wonders known to humankind. That's some billing to live up to right there. And you can have it today. You can go to the auction site And bid right now, if you have verified dollars, pounds, euros, or cryptocurrency, it is expected to bring almost $7 million. But before you whip out that iPhone or checkbook and start bidding, Tim McCoy says, not so fast. McCoy is the curator of the meteorite collection at the Smithsonian Institute. And honestly, I never knew we had a meteorite collection at the Smithsonian Institute or a person that is the curator for such a collection. It's a massive collection, I have learned. The Smithsonian has 30,000 meteorites. But none of them are anything like the Enigma. This leads McCoy to believe that the diamond is not from outer space, but from Earth. It's just unusual. As he commented on this diamond, on this whole auction thing, and the anonymous ownership of it, we only know that some billionaire from Dubai had it cut. McCoy said this, You know, every rock has a story, and we just have to know how to listen to it. And I think this is a rock that we can't quite understand its story yet. But it's going to be a really good one when someone figures it out. This line again, Every rock has a story, and we just have to know how to listen to it. And I would add, it's not just rocks. It's clouds and trees and the moon and the sunrise and the beach and the mountains and everything that surrounds it. Almost every year between Advent and Lent, Lent I turn to the lectionary. Again, the Revised Common Lectionary is a three-year cycle of weekly readings 
used by churches all over the world. It was completely unknown to me in in my tradition growing up, but now I, I really value it. And it's built around the seasons of the church year. And this is a strange, awkward time that we are now in. Lent and Holy Week and Easter really aren't that far away. So starting some big series is a difficult thing to do. So I turned to the, to the lectionary for some guidance. And one of the readings for today, and there's always four readings from the Scriptures in the lectionary each day, and one of those is Psalm 19, Anna read for us. I've read that psalm a hundred times, probably over the course of my life. And for some reason, this time, when I read those verses, it really bowled me over. The heavens are telling the glory of God, it said. Each day speaks. Every night declares knowledge. They're not words, of course, but the voice of God speaks nonetheless. Dr. Tim McCoy, again from the Smithsonian, every rock has a story. And we just have to know how to listen to it. And again, it's not just rocks. It's clouds and trees and the moon and the sunrise and the beach and the mountains and everything that surrounds us. Creation speaks to us about the glory and wonder of God. Do we have ears to hear what our beautiful world is telling us? The world speaks, it sings, it whispers, sometimes it shouts, pointing us to what William James called the wondrous more, what Paul Tillich describes as being, being itself the ground and power and essence of all that exists. Sometimes philosophers refer to this as natural theology. Natural, not because faith or religion erupts naturally, but it is from the idea that rational, rational, sensible human beings in their natural state can look to the natural world, the creation, the universe, and logically come to a conclusion that there is indeed a wondrous more behind it all. It is natural revelation, revelation from nature, not supernatural, depending upon some divine scripture or miracles or mystical experiences. Some come to the conclusion from creation alone that there is indeed a personal God behind it all. Some come to the conclusion where they won't say maybe it's a personal God, but something intelligent is behind it all. And still others using these same tools of human rationale are not convinced of God's existence at all. But natural theology argues that it is at least reasonable to come to that conclusion, that there is something greater at work in the world than mere chance. When I was in college, my pastor, Jether Cochran, took on this subject in a sermon once. Jether became my pastor and guide on my way out of the hardest years of my fundamentalism growing up. And he likely saved my faith. Well, I'm certain that he did. And I love and appreciate him to this day. I didn't know it at the time, but he was using William Paley's argument from natural theology, for those interested in the details, it's called a teleological argument. And Paley popularized this idea some 300 years ago. 
And Jether was preaching along these same lines as I am today, and he took off his watch, and he held it up to the congregation, just like I'm doing now. His was obviously not an Apple watch. And he says something to this effect. If you were to stumble upon this fine watch, and you inspected it, and you observed its gears and its precision, you would be well within reason to come to the conclusion that such an invention requires an inventor. The existence of the watch points to the existence of a watchmaker. I can see Jeet standing there in my 18-year-old mind now. <laughs> and years later in philosophy class and years later in seminary when this argument showed up again and again because it did and it does, I had the advantage of getting introduced to it early and I've never forgotten it. Now does this argument for the existence of God prove that God exists? No. Does it supply empirical, forensic evidence that God is real? No. It simply says, hey, you have to admit that there is at least a chance. It is reasonable, it is logical, it is sensible to at least entertain the notion that something or someone is out there and all of creation speaks on this someone's behalf. And where that logic begins is all around us. Every rock has a story. And we just have to know how to listen to it. And it's not just rocks, it's clouds and trees and the moon and the sunrise and the beach and the mountains and everything that surrounds us. And though words are not spoken, isn't all of this trying to tell us something? Isn't all of this possibly pointing us in a Godward direction? Try on this quote, for example. There is a grandeur in this life, having been originally breathed by the Creator, and this planet cycles toward the most beautiful and the most wonderful. Charles Darwin said that. In his book, The Origin of Species, the same Darwin and the same book so often identified as enemies of faith, which is absurd. Even the most scientific minds, not all, even the most critical critics, not all, often must leave place in space for the wondrous more that seems to drive creation. The absolute marvel of nature. The sheer wonder of all that is. The glorious diversity and beauty of the universe. It speaks to us in a way that not even the Bible can speak to us. And I'm not taking a low view of Scripture here. I'm saying that the first Bible most of us ever read is a sunrise. Or a rainbow. Or the view through a telescope or a full moon hanging above the Gulf of Mexico like it did this week. And you just have to say, wow. Scientists and theologians are not alone in this conclusion. There are also songwriters. One small example comes from the tune we sang just before I spoke. 
I chose it specifically because, specifically because of its message and how it relates to Psalm 19. It was written by Jackson Brown, Doctor My Eyes, which is a much more poetic way than saying, Mr. Optometrist, why can't I see clearly? And it should be poetic. Brown is one of the great songwriters of the 20th century. Take it easy, the Eagles, the Pretender, running on empty, all great songs. But his first hit was this one, Doctor My Eyes. Crosby, Still, and Nash were on the original background vocals. James Taylor's band was the rhythm section. And still the record company didn't want to release this song. They said it was too depressing. But it was so honest, they had to. It's about a guy who admits he has lost his idealism, his vision. He admits that he can't see clearly. He looks out on the world but cannot see its beauty any longer. He cannot see hope. He cannot find the good. And he fears that it's too late for him. Maybe he's now so jaded and so cynical that he can't see and he can't hear the wondrous more lurking behind all the evil and the ugliness he is now focused on. Now that's Jackson Brown's own description of the song, not mine. That's what this song is all about. And that is heavy, man. Especially... If you write that song as your first hit shortly after your 20th birthday. But what a message for us. Have we, have you, grown so world weary and tired that you have lost your vision? Have you grown so cynical and soured by the awfulness of what we humans do to each other and how we act that you can't hear the beauty of creation, that you can't hear God if you are a person of faith speak to you. And of course, there's the other song we sang. Tim was making fun of the high church song when I selected it, but it turned out great. All creatures of our God and King. And Tim, indeed, it is a high church song. That song is a thousand years old. Tradition has it that St. Francis of Assisi wrote it, and it sure fits his style. Certainly, he wrote the poem that it is now based upon, a work entitled Canticle of the Sun, one of the first works of poetry ever written in Italian. Francis saw God in everything. He heard God speak everywhere. He counted himself as a brother of creation. He was deeply connected to all that was. He would refer to the sun as brother sun and sister moon. Brother wind, sister bird, brother fire. When you get tired of people, when you get tired of work, when you get tired of depressing news and fearful happenings in faraway places, Francis would say, get outside. God is speaking. If you will listen, God can be found if you will look. God is still good if you will but taste and see. This world is soaked with the presence of God. And God's voice booms and it whispers for those who will hear it. 
So what is God saying? What is God showing? What is God revealing? What story is God telling us through the rocks and the trees, the birds and the bees, the sun and the moon filled with heaven's tune? Well, you tell me. What do you hear God saying? What do you see God revealing? What tune is in your head and heart that you hum along to? Now, if you answer me today, well, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. I've never really looked for or listened to what creation has to say. Then, my friend, doctor your eyes. A world of holy discovery is waiting on you. Rise up early and watch the sun come up over the horizon. Stay up late and look at giant sister moon hanging in a black sky. Count all the different colors in a winter sunset over the Gulf of Mexico. Find a mountain. It doesn't have to be the tallest one in the world. Climb to the top if you can and take it all in. Look at the images captured by the Hubble telescope. Look at the world hiding on the other side of a stereo microscope. My Lord, it's as infinite as outer space, it seems. Look at the flowers planted in little pots on your back porch. I hope you covered them last night or they're goners. Observe every petal every leaf. Hold a newborn baby in your arms. Watch snow fall silently on a forest. Look closely at the near artistic design of the frost on your windshield like I did this morning. Have you ever seen the magnificent image of a dragonfly's eyes? The waves of sand that ripple Across the Sahara, the terrifying magnitude of a redwood tree. How Venus and Jupiter hold true and bright on a cold night as the rest of heaven's lights dance and dodge. Have you listened to a whippoorwill in the springtime calling out at dusk? Have you heard a million tree frogs in chorus after a springtime rain? Have you ever seen an emerald sea turtle wash up with brilliant eyes on a snow-white beach? Have you ever seen a halo of rainbows fill the sky? God has not lost power. Creation has not lost its voice. It is we, more often than not, who lose our sight and lose our hearing and have our attention pulled away. I'll refer to one more song. First, The most popular English hymn of all time is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But this song wins the silver medal. It is the second favorite, and it's really a modern phenomenon. It wasn't until the 1950s when George Beverly Shea started belting it out at Billy Graham Crusades that it became a staple of the English-speaking world. That, and Elvis won one of his only Grammys for his rendition of How Great Thou Art. The hymn began as a poem written by Carl Boberg, a Swede, in 1885. He was walking home from church on a Sunday afternoon, and he got caught in a sudden thunderstorm. 
violent storm. Thunder, rain, a few pellets of hail. He ran for cover and as, as quickly as he could. And then just as suddenly as the storm had appeared, it was gone. Boberg looked out from his porch at the suddenly clear blue sky. Mountains hung in the distance, mountains that had always been there. The Baltic Sea was flat like a giant blue mirror. Birds were singing. In the distance, the church bells were ringing. And a rainbow filled the sky. And Boberg was struck with awe and with inspiration. He wrote nine verses to that poem. None of them, by the way, about Jesus' return or the end of the age. Those verses, which are such a part of American revivalism, were added on much, much later. All of Boberg's verses were about the sights and sounds of creation and how these sights and sounds brought him to humble, grateful worship. The literal English translation reads in part like this. When I consider the high wonders of heaven, where your golden ships plow the ether blue, how the sun and the moon Measure the moments of time. When I hear the voice of thunder in a roaring storm and see the blades of lightning run across the sky, when the cold, fresh wind whistles and the rainbow fills the sky and refreshing rain falls down, then my soul bursts forth into praise. And in the Swedish, O store good, O great God. 